Difficulty lies not so much in developing new ideas as in escaping from old ones. Others struck a more optimistic note about the recovery and its root causes. Jeremy Siegel is Russell E. Palmer, Professor of Finance, Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Incorrect models of real estate and over-leveraging were causal factors, but markets do work, says Siegel, and we're back. My view is that uh, there was over-leveraging in real estate-related assets, mortgages and outright real estate, in the United States by major financial institutions, particularly the investment banks. I'm talking about Bear Stearns. I'm talking about Lehman um, uh, and, uh, and AIG. And uh, uh, they, they were built on totally incorrect models of, of the risk that is in housing. And they, they didn't recognize that risk and, and thought these were safe securities. They overleveraged them. When the real estate went down, they tanked. The problems of Greek sovereign debt will have to be addressed within Europe, but it's not going to impede recovery. Siegel. Greece is a very different situation, but uh, one thing we know about crises, when, when they uh, recede, we get to see who's strong and, and who's weak. And I think that uh, we, we get to see how really weak Greece is. Uh, their cost structure was just pushed up way too high. I always felt, and a lot of my colleagues felt in the United States, although there was this enthusiasm for the euro that encompassed far too many countries uh, that just uh, couldn't have the discipline or, or the cost structure to, to join it, and I think you're seeing that uh, problem right now. Economic crisis and the crisis in economics does need debate, but Keynes himself did not fail us, and fiscal stimulus packages did prevent another Great Depression. Better regulation is needed. Siegel again. No. Uh, in some ways, it, it saved us. Um, uh, there was two things that I think did that has brought us back, and one was save the financial system, uh, the, the Federal Reserve and central banks around the world flooding with liquidity. Uh, in a way, you know, when I grew, grew up in economics, there was always a battle between Keynes and Friedman. I think both were right. Friedman said you had to save the banking system. The Fed did wrong. They completely reversed it. They provided help for the banking system, uh, and, 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 and we had fiscal stimulus, and we could argue about how much it helped or hurt, but I think it did help somewhat. I think both those helped. And the reason we are not going into a Great Depression right now is really because of um, not the failed uh, uh, stature of, of, of traditional economic theory, but I think of, of what we have learned uh, uh, not to do. Uh, and I think it has absolutely helped us. But people in this conference is going to look in one session at a new financial architecture. Doesn't it mean that perhaps the economic models that we've used in the past are not up to scratch? Well, the model that says you need no regulation, <laughs> that, you know, that, uh, that all financial institutions will look after themselves and we don't have to worry about risk, they can lay it off today. I mean, that is, that, and that was an extreme thing. And, and, and I think Greenspan, unfortunately, had in one way, reason he, he missed this whole crisis. Uh, but, uh, but we do need regulation. Uh, 
we do need higher capital requirements uh, th than we had. We we have to have a warning uh, when when asset prices begin to look like they might be out of line. None of those were forthcoming, and I I think that's one of the, the failures of of the regulatory agency more than than any economic theory. What about the markets? Did market theory let us down, demand and supply, all that good old stuff? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there, there's a whole question, and you know, I'm speaking about whether the markets were, were efficient uh, or, or not. Um, I think they gave warning signs uh, that things were bad before really the officials admitted it. And then afterwards they saw uh, how high those prices went and how bad those mortgages were. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I uh, you know the, the markets often go to extremes one way or the other, um, but um, you know we we can't give them up. They're they're still the foundation of our, our economic system. We're going to have to learn to live with them, regulate them. Tony Lawson, a reader in economics at Cambridge, is a realist. He's no fan of that mathematical modelling approach, and hopes that economics can break free of that straitjacket. I'm looking at the responses to the crisis in terms of how the, the economy should change. And mostly the proposals are for different models with different forms of modelling. I think if we really want to um, get a discipline that's uh, capable of addre addressing what goes on in the economy, we need to go one step further. We need to move beyond economic modelling. By modelling, I, of course, mean mathematical modelling. I think that the problem with the discipline is the emphasis it puts on, on mathematics. Um, I think there's a belief that people who are opposed to the emphasis on mathematical modelling um, take the position they do out of a, a set of preferences, their sort of distaste for mathematics, or else they just can't do it. The position that's not heard enough is actually good reasons for not putting the emphasis on mathematics. Uh, mathematics is basically a tool, like a hammer, like a pair of scissors, like whatever, and all these tools are appropriate under some conditions and not others. Mathematics is also a tool. The sort of mathematics economists use are tools, and they're appropriate to some conditions and not others. And I'm going to argue that the sort of conditions we find in social reality, i.e. the nature of the material social reality, is such that mathematical methods typically are not appropriate to it. Lawson has a clear idea as to how the economic models should be improved in the future. What I'm saying is more radical. I think these models cannot be adapted. They presuppose a world that's different from the world we live in. They presuppose a world of atomistic people or agents, whatever they are, firms, banks, whatever. And to get event regularities, it's a long story, but they have to act in isolation, whereas the whole of social reality is interconnected. So I don't actually think mathematical models, however clever, however sophisticated, however different, will prove to be very appropriate to social illumination. Laws and favours the ontological approach to economics. This is the use of observation of actual behaviours and situations rather than mathematical models to underpin economic theories. Um, I do quote Popper, but I quote Popper partly because, to point out this is the philosopher that economists point to, if they ever point to a philosopher at all. I want to suggest that a broader range of philosophy be brought into economics and most especially ontology. Now, ontology, I mean the study of being, the nature of structure of reality. And that's my basic message is when we use methods, mathematical methods, any methods, we must ask the question, 
what are the conditions for which they're useful? And then we ask the question, what is the nature of society? And do these two things match? Is society the sort of stuff that mathematics can be used to illuminate? So we need to turn to social ontology, the tradition from Aristotle to modern-day uh, ontologists, many of which are in Cambridge now. Now, as it happens, Popper, at the end of his life, turned increasingly to ontology. His last two, or his last book, which has two parts just before it died, was all about ontology. It's all about the openness of the social system, the nature of propensities in social reality. So, yes, Popper is relevant too. The Realist Workshop is all about ontology. Realism just means there's a world out there we can get to know it. Ontology is obviously bound up with realism. It's asking what is the nature of that world, what is the nature of reality, in this case, what's the nature of social reality. That passion about the critical need to reform economies is shared by Professor James Galbraith, LBJ School of Public Affairs. Development of national economies can now be measured and compared on a planetary level, and since the 1980s, many have been in decline. Galbraith. Well, for, oh, 15 years now, I have been working with a research group at the University of Texas at Austin on the problem of measuring economic inequality around the world uh, on an annual basis for most countries, um, filling in gaps, in effect, in data sets which were really very imperfect, very difficult to work with. And what we have found, and what I will talk about, is that there is a common pattern in the movement of economic inequality, which corresponds very closely to the dominant financial events, to the major uh, transitions in financial regime of the last several generations. Uh, In particular, with the collapse of Bretton Woods in the early 1970s, inequality around the world tended to decline as a result of the commodities boom of that period. With the debt crisis of the early 1980s, it rose, and it rose steadily almost everywhere in the world, with a few important exceptions for 20 years. There was another turning point in around 2001, and a modest decline in inequality after that. So what we're finding with a common global pattern really lays the basis for thinking about uh, economic developments at the level of the planet as a whole, at the level of the entire world. And and this is useful because uh, much of the world is, in fact, financially integrated and therefore strongly affected by changes in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the financial climate. And you can expect the effects of the financial crisis of the last two years to be felt in data that will, uh, that will be collected from uh, eventually. But as the Western world's economies declined, the tiger economies of India and China began to grow. And that, he says, was a coincidence. The recovery must not be taken as a given. Galbraith again. The exceptions to rising inequality in the 1980s were very straightforwardly uh, India and China. Uh, And they were, the reasons are not hard to understand. Both of those countries were substantially isolated from uh, the, um, uh, the rush to commercial bank financing of development of the previous decade. China had been completely autarkic until the reforms of the 1970s, and of course it never, um, late 1970s, and and of course it never uh, went into external debt. As a result of that, it was in a financial position to begin growing just at the time that the rest of the uh, world economy was entering a sustained crisis. And much of the world that we live in today is a product of that historical coincidence uh, that China's growth uh, 
and opening to the world occurred at a moment that was really very propitious from, from the Chinese point of view. Now, we've already heard from the conference that people talk about the conference. Some say they don't know what caused it. They don't know uh, what gave rise to the remedy for it either. But they are talking the about crisis. the crisis. People, people are talking about going back into growth now, even for the Western economies, even uh, for Britain. Do you agree with that synopsis? I think it is premature uh, to uh, treat the crisis as over. Uh, there certainly has been a stabilization of activity, especially in the United States. And we know that, that is because of the, uh, if you like, intrinsically Keynesian uh, institutions of the uh, American economy, the fact that the government spends more and that takes in less in taxes and runs very large deficits uh, in an event when an event like this occurs. And that means that the fall in output and employment is much greater than the fall in income and uh, ultimately in activity. So we are uh, seeing the stabilization as a result of that, but we have not seen a stabilization of home prices. We've not seen a a return of the financial sector to lending for ordinary economic activity, and I don't think we are going to see those things uh, any time very soon. So it's it's really premature, and I think entirely wrong-headed, to think of the economy as returning now uh, to its previously normal condition. Uh, there will there are still major major challenges, and I think in fact an entirely new direction uh, for economic activity for economic expansion has to be set and established largely by public policy, but with basically public policy setting the framework for public and private activity uh, before we will see a return to high employment in the United States. Uh, Europe, for that matter, of course, is still in, uh, and in fact, moving, it seems, into a deepening crisis. Uh, And so I see no reason to expect that with deflationary policies being imposed on the European periphery uh, by Germany and France, uh, that we will be seeing uh, a return to growth in the European region anytime soon. The structures that govern the world's economies need a new financial architecture, says Galbraith, and economists must bear some of the blame for the crisis. A bolder approach is needed. So are we inevitably going to see a global world where the rich become richer and the poor poor? No, I don't think that's inevitable. Uh, and in fact, I think the Chinese experience is a, um, a striking example of a poor country which has uh, um, greatly uh, improved its income levels and living standards in over 30 years. Uh, but uh, it's a model of uh, purpose-driven uh, uh, um, Activity and, and uh, successful organization that brought that about. Okay. And um, in, in terms of that market driven organization, a lot of people are laying blame at the markets indeed. You know, did the ma- theory of markets within economics let us down? You talked about m- uh, macroeconomics, but, but do you think we can talk about blame and economists? Economists bear a very heavy professional responsibility here. This is a a profession which has gone through a generation of what I will call intellectual negligence and malpractice, uh, and which there has been a systematic uh, simplification of the profession, systematic exclusion of alternative viewpoints, in which Keynes, uh, in particular, since we're here at King's College, Cambridge, it's important to mention, has become a marginal figure whom nobody reads and nobody understands. 
uh, and uh, in which it's become very, very difficult to pursue a career uh, in which you have uh, a, uh, uh, a, a critical perspective on the institutions of advanced financial capitalism. But what should that new architecture be? Professor Helena Ray of London Business School has taken a strong position on what needs to change in the future. Quite simply, the world is too reliant on the dollar. Well, uh, under one interpretation, uh, the current crisis can be seen as uh, uh, some uh, failure in the, in the country which is at the centre of the international monetary system, that is to say the United States. Um, the external position of the US has been deteriorating for quite a number of years with uh, large global imbalances built up. Uh, building up over time. And uh, so one uh, maybe relevant question that we can ask is whether we should rethink the internationalization of, uh, of the dollar and uh, whether we should rethink the whole organization of the international monetary system uh, under the lights of a recent event. There is, she says, an opportunity for the Chinese renminbi and even the euro to eventually underpin a more stable economic order and to form part of that new financial architecture. Well, so one interpretation of the current crisis is that it was favoured by a very long build-up of these external imbalances, the global imbalances. And why could these massive current account deficits of the US be financed for so long? Because a lot of market participants around the world are more than happy to, to, to hold dollar assets. There is a massive demand for liquidity, uh, and uh, the US is the main provider of that liquidity. As a result, uh, it seems that... Um, the net external position of the U.S. has kept on deteriorating over time uh, for many years. Now, this is not a sustainable thing. You cannot uh, have a net external asset position which goes down and down and down without limit. So at some point, it will have to go up. How do we usually get the net external asset position to go up? It happens by a depreciation uh, of the currency. In, in that case, a depreciation of the dollar. Right. So that means we are maybe... Uh, starting to be in a little bit of an unstable or at least uncomfortable situation in which we have the World Banker who is issuing the, the, uh, the, the international liquidity uh, which, whose external wealth is turning increasingly negative. And that means ultimately that the value of the dollar will have to decrease. Now, we wouldn't want to, have, to be in a position where we have a very abrupt adjustment where a lot of people around the world are incredibly doubtful about the value of the dollar and uh, just uh, perform a run on the dollar. We wouldn't want, I guess, a collapse, um, an abrupt collapse of the system. So one way of, uh, of dealing with it, possibly, would be to introduce other international liquidity providers, um, such as, so maybe in the future, the euro area, we could think of China, whatever, in, 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 in uh, quite a number of years. And that way, we could impose probably more discipline on current account financing and avoid some of the excesses that I think are at the root of a, of a current economic crisis. So this is the rationale for which it is at least interesting to revisit this issue of the organization of the international monetary system and to think about the possibility of having other international liquidity providers. The importance of money flows from it being a link between the present and the future. This three currencies approach to underpin liquidity is new, and this view is shared by Franklin Allen, Nippon Life Professor of Finance and Economics, the Wharton School. Along with others, 
Allen also addressed the need to move away from asset-led bubbles and to implement more egalitarian systems for sharing wealth. The too-big-to-fail ethos needs to change. Well, I think the first issue is what went wrong, and my own view is that what went wrong is that there were asset price bubbles in the US and Spain and Ireland and a number of other countries. So I think the reason was that central banks back in 2003 to 2004 kept interest rates too low for too long, and this was at a time in the US, for example, when house prices were already going up at more than 10%, and if you can borrow at 1% and, and uh, invest at something going up at 10%, it's a very good deal. And this is the problem. That then led to this huge explosion in house prices, which was unsustainable. And starting in 2006, we had the fall in house prices. Professor Allen thinks banks in the UK and the USA should be smaller, but that new economics needs a new world order. And reaching such agreements will be problematic. I think in the UK you need smaller banks. I think that these uh, enormous banks are not a good thing because as you've seen it ends up causing of course huge problems in terms of the amount of money that you have to put into them. So I think in the UK you should probably have smaller banks, yes. And I think being a financial centre has a lot of advantages but it's probably should be limited the amount so that the, gov- the country can afford it if things go wrong. And what about a new international order too? Do we all have to act on the domestic stage or do we, as we've heard quite a lot at this conference, need a new global order? I think a new global order would be nice but the problem is that the structure of the IMF is such that this won't be possible and the reason is going back to Keynes's Bretton Woods it, it's an organisation that the, the IMF is an organisation that's dominated by the Europeans and the Americans and the Asians have been closed out of it effectively for the last 60 years and that's not going to change quickly as, as we saw in Pittsburgh the British and the French said no we're not going to give up our rights in the IMF in terms of being on the executive board and so on and this is a big problem so I think it, it's going to be very difficult to have that kind of a, agreement internationally. So what would Keynes have thought of the three-day discussions? Professor Bruce Caldwell of Duke University examined the famous discussions between Keynes and his sparring partner Hayek. He's editor of the collected work of F.A. Hayek, History of Economic Thought, Economic Methodology. Hayek, although very famous in his own right, uh, in this particular context is famous for a debate that he had with Keynes back in the early 1930s. So I started out talking just a little bit about the... um, Origins of that debate, it, it actually started with, with Hayek uh, reviewing, writing a review of, of a book uh, that Keynes wrote, not the general theory, but a treatise on money, and an exchange between the two of them that, uh, that ensued. Uh, the other uh, stuff that I talked about regarding Hayek was, uh, well, he's, he's known as someone who uh, embraces free markets and uh, is a bit suspicious of the effectiveness of regulation. So I talked a little bit about that, and I ended my talk uh, talking about his contributions to the theory of complex phenomena, his uh, view that he thought that the economy is an example of something that that represented a complex phenomena, and that uh, as, as such, it's, uh, it's quite hard to make predictions, 
uh, not much more than a pattern prediction is what he said uh, would be possible. And that when you make explanations, you can explain the principle how things work, but, uh, but often can't get much beyond that. Standing in the same hall at King's College, Cambridge, that Keynes knew so well, Professor Caldwell took us back to our futures. If we then look to the crisis we're in today, what do you think Keynes might have said? Have you ever had any of those conversations with any of those great masters of the past? How do you think he might have weighed up uh, the situation we're in today, the crisis? He was an interesting person in the following, well, in many ways, but in, in, in regards to that particular question, he was not a big fan of econometrics, for example. So it's not clear to me that he would have uh, said, well, uh, if we just had better econometric tools, we would have been able to anticipate this. He certainly would be in favor of uh, attempting a, a stimulus package to try to increase aggregate demand during a recession. Uh, nationalization of banks has happened in the United States. Not sure how he'd feel about that. He, he didn't really uh, seem to be uh, as... Uh, as strong towards nationalization as some of the people with with whom he and Hayek uh, debated. So, uh, very interesting question, though. Yeah, I'd like to sit on the bench with him. So what will the press be saying about the future of economics now? Anatol Koletsky is editor-at-large, an economic commentator of the Times of London. I think we have to move towards a new economics because we're in, I think what is clear is we're in a period of transition to an entirely new global economic system, if you like, a new version of the capitalist system. And for that to be possible, there's got to be a new economics to describe how it works. How would he sum up the conflicts in economic thinking at the present time? We're moving, Koletsky thinks, to Capitalism 4.0, the title of his new book, away from a monopolistic approach to economics to a more diverse one. I'm calling this phase Capitalism 4.0. I'm writing a book about it, which has been published uh, in a couple of months' time. Uh, and I think, well, in a sense, there's not a deficiency of either. There are many, many ideas out there, some of them harking back to the way people thought uh, 30, 40, 70 years ago. Uh, I think we're, lo we're looking at a uh, re-establishment of Keynesian economics, also to some extent Austrian economics, which was very powerful in the 1920s and 30s. That's what the discussion on Keynes and Hayek on the first night of the conference was about. Uh, what happened in the last 30 years, though, is that although there are many economic ideas out there, almost all of them were excluded from what was considered to be the canon of acceptable established e academic economics. Uh, and we had really a monopolistic situation developing, which again I think is rather ironic given that economists believe in competition. Uh, the one field in which particularly very pro-market economists didn't believe in competition was in economic theory itself. Koletsky says the worst of the crisis is over for the USA and the UK. In the emerging markets, there will be strong growth, but the eurozone remains problematic. He credits Keynes and Friedman with providing the solutions to the downturn, but acknowledges that Keynes would find it hard to get a job in an economics department today. There's no way that Keynes would have got a job in any economics department in the, uh, in the, in the world today. And, and crisis, what crisis? Uh, are we through it? How far through it? 
Well, I think the worst of the crisis uh, is over in the United States. Personally, I think it's also over in Britain, uh, largely because, as Jeremy Siegel was saying in the, in the last talk, actually macroeconomics has worked pretty well in the last two years. It, w it was hopelessly bad for the previous five to ten years, and one could argue that the crisis was created by a failure of macroeconomics. But actually, the response to the crisis basically tore up everything that macroeconomics has been teaching the last 20 years, went back both to Keynes and to Friedman, incidentally, and they did everything Keynes said government spending and so on. Everything Friedman said, print lots and lots of money, and it does seem to be working. So uh, I think in the US and UK and emerging markets, it probably is over. The worst is over. Uh, I think the Eurozone is a, a bigger problem. And finally, that book, uh, Capitalism 4.0, when is it going to be on the shelves? Uh, it, it's coming out in June. In defining the past and thinking about our new economics future, the INET conference the economic crisis and the crisis in economics may not have reconciled those different approaches to economics yet, but it certainly sent the world's leading economists away with a clearer view of what their colleagues are thinking. False theory, says George Soros, has created tremendous damage. There is an inherent imperfection in our understanding of reality that applies to market participants, to regulators, and to economists. And, but what is imperfect can be improved. And now that we see how the false theory has created tremendous damage, uh, trillions of dollars of losses, it's really urgent to improve our understanding and rethink our, our view of the world, knowing that whatever we think is bound to be flawed. There is no harm in being sometimes wrong, especially if one is promptly found out. <laughs>